This is Michelle Weston with Wellness Learning Curves 2.0. It's great to be back with you. And as usual, I have a really interesting guest. Today, I'm bringing Laura Bernstein, who is an MD, who comes from 30 years in anesthesiology for children, and just an amazing, lovely lady. But she's been transitioning and being a person to be able to see a hole in the situation of healthcare is really important. So as we talk about chronic conditions, there is a chronic challenge with the healthcare system. And we both see an opportunity to create change in the healthcare system. But as a MD working literally in the trenches, um, I wanted her to come on and talk to us about chronic. Something that is chronic is something that goes on all the time. And that's why when you hear chronic, you all just are sort of like, you know, chronic condition. It goes on forever and forever. Don't think that's a Debbie Downer. Think that that's something that is chronically around. So I've seen people with diabetes one and two be the most breathtaking champions for themselves by tackling how they're going to handle their diet. And they don't back off. You met someone who had diabetes one since she was 16 and then was given another chronic condition, a diagnosis with celiac. So chronic is just something that's around all the time and it hangs there. But we can change and we can make change happen. And that's why I brought Laura on. She is one of my mentors as I shift and change my career. And we're both coaches now, but she's going to coach a little differently. And we also were talking about what happens when you go to the doctor, what happens when we're communicating. And on that note, I'm going to say hello to Miss Laura. How are Hi, you, Laura? How I'm are good. You? Thank good. you for having me. Oh, my goodness. What a pleasure. Honestly, what a pleasure. Um where do we start? You know, you see little P, you saw for many years, little P patients with sometimes chronic conditions, sometimes terminal. How with an audience of women who either caregivers or patients um, or spouses um, help people see with chronic conditions, how we can help them from a healthcare point of view to create change and shift lifestyles to help themselves because I believe in lifestyle shifts and lifestyle changes that way in regards to chronic illness. And I think that we can change that with diet and exercise. I'm sorry you guys hear that again, but you want to call it physical activity. I like that better than exercise. Um, but your body needs you to be its champion. And doctors really want you to be in the position to help your body heal, to help you understand what's going on. And in the world of healthcare, first off, Laura, 
what about this whole thing of eight to 12 minutes with the patient, whereas you used to have 30 minutes, an hour, whatever you needed? Yeah, so that's an interesting question you bring up, Michelle. And as you know, you know, within pediatric anesthesia, my particular specialty has been working with patients who have cardiac disease, which certainly for the vast majority of them is a chronic condition they will live with for the rest of their lives. Even if we have done surgery, we have palliated their condition. It still exists. It still has effects on them. So explain palliated to people because I talk about palliative care. Explain that because you're putting it in different context. I am. So palliated is a word that we use that to us means we can never take your heart back to what it was before we did surgery. Even if the surgery that we have done has improved the function of your heart, or in the case of a lot of my kids, the plumbing, because they have connections or holes in their heart that shouldn't be there, right? Even so, we have we have hopefully made you better, but we call it palliation because it is not a complete repair. It is not going back to a heart that was structurally normal that has never been operated on. And so even when we do the best of surgeries, there are always effects from those surgeries. And sometimes, sometimes those effects may not show up for five or 10 years, you, you know, but it's an ongoing process. It is very much a chronic process. And we use the word palliate just to respect the fact that there are always effects from what we have done. So when we hear palliative care for care towards end of life or because you are in, this is the other thing I keep stressing to people, palliative care is also for when you are in uh, recovering from a hip surgery. And you could be in, that is called palliative care. That is months and months of um, getting care to help you live with the new hip, the new knee, the new heart, the new kidney, but it will be um, something that you will live with. So now that you had a chronic condition, we, now that you had a chronic condition like heart disease and we quote fixed what we could with your heart, or we gave you a new heart, which isn't your heart. So it didn't come with your body. So this is a new one. Um, You're going to have chronic issues, chronic challenges that will come up. Right. And uh, right. I think a good way to put it is, you know, I, I actually had heart surgery in 2007, which was not something that I necessarily anticipated as a cardiac <laughs> anesthesiologist that I myself crazy, was a right? patient. Okay? Crazy, crazy. Um, but I, I did. I had a mitral valve that didn't function properly. And so I had surgery and they put a ring around the valve and they put sutures in it to tighten it up. And you know what? So far, so far, that's been brilliant. But I keep getting monitored because there's a good chance that at some point that valve will at some point start to leak a little bit again. That's just the course of events. Okay. So you're exactly right. When I say palliative, I don't mean palliative in the sense that it's used for end of life care. I mean, palliative in the sense that my heart valve is never going to be pristine as in a mitral valve that has never been operated on. Got no, it. It will, it will always be a leaky mitral valve that is now made better after surgery, but still one day is probably going to become a little leaky again. And it's also like me with bariatrics. You know what? If I don't see the bariatric surgeon 
at least once a year, I'm not doing myself a service to make sure that all the plumbing, again, is okay. If I'm struggling and gaining some weight or I'm having trouble keeping food down or I'm getting GERD, that, like you said, the leaky valve for you, if yeah. I'm not letting them know that, he or she, as the surgeon, doesn't know, you know what, we need to go in and, oh, you have a hernia. We have to fix this. But I'm also going to tighten the bariatric work that I did in there to give you that same strength that you've had to have lost all the weight that you did. And that's palliative care. I see, I see them and I make sure that I am the best that I can be with what they fixed so that I stay out of the obesity lane. I think the simplest way to think about it is that in every aspect of our lives, change is a constant. Mm. Change is not easy for human beings. We resist it, but it, it, it happens, right? And it happens with our bodies too. It happens as we age. It happens with different medical conditions. And so, yes, we just, we monitor. And it's important to monitor. And that's why, you know, with certain doctors, you go and visit again. That's why they're specialists. You know, sometimes you see a specialist. I see, um, sometimes you'll see them every six months. Sometimes you'll see every year, you know, um, depends on what your family history is too. You know, always people are like, why do you see your, your, um, your cardiologist every six months? It's like, well, because my mother, my father, both sets of grandparents on both sides had cardiac disease had heart disease in some form. So I need to be on top of that. And even though I'm on a statin drug that helps keep me there, they need to do an EKG every six months. They need to just, she needs to see what it is because if something changes and you have history of following it, you will then see that those subtleties, right? Right. I think it's important. I think that people need to understand that because it it does. It make it makes a difference, you know. Um we were talking about kids and chronic conditions and how the word resilient is uh, the word I use and 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 um Laura said the same in her in her language. They kids just want to recover from cancer, from surgery, from all this stuff, so they can get back to the playground to go do what they want to do. And that's why they're resilient. And that's why they are a little bit tenacious, which is good and very focused because they want to get better so that they can get out there again. And that's a pretty cool thing. It's a really cool thing. It it does bring something to mind for me that I think is probably really important in your world too, though, Michelle, which is that, you know, nobody is in a vacuum. And so my patients, especially at age two or three or four, yes, their agenda is I want to go do the things I want to go do, right? Yep. Plain and simple. As soon as I have the energy to go do those things, and maybe even before you think I should be doing those things, I'm going to go do those things. (laughs) But, you know, there's a whole other group of people there that are impacted by this, the family, yep. the siblings, the parents, everybody who's around because they experience such a variety of emotions with all of that. Glad you want to do that, a little afraid that you're going to do that. you know. And so I think one of the really important parts of our work, and this is one of the reasons I love cardiac anesthesia, because for kids in particular, 
We do see a lot of these families again and again. So you do feel like you get the chance to develop relationships, which is not something traditionally in anesthesia practice you think about having, right? But it's a very real thing to look at what is the impact of this illness, not just on the patient and the child, but the family. How are they doing and how is what's happening here impacting the family as well? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, everybody, like you just said, everybody lives with the chronic condition. Yeah. That's not a bad thing. Don't like freak out everybody out there. Just, you know, because it sounds much more ominous than it is. But it's just, you need to pay attention. Look, I used to, so here's an example. Also, I used to, 22 years ago, see the neurologist every six months like clockwork. We got to a point later after 15 years that he said, I don't need to see you every six months. You're doing fine. If you need me, I'm here. You'll call the office. You'll come in immediately, of course. But I can see you once a year for multiple sclerosis. That's pretty cool. You know, it's like, you don't need to see me because I'm doing okay. First, I thought, no, you need to see me. I need to come in because I have MS and I have a chronic condition. Now, as the years go on, I go, I think to myself, I guess I'm doing what I can do for my chronic condition to make sure that I'm okay, that I'm doing well. So, that can have a positive. That's why I just brought that up. So chronic addition sounds ominous, but it's not. People figure out how to live with lots of things, you know? I mean, Lori, we're talking about the Boston Marathon. Are you running with a team? She's You can't qualify for the Boston Marathon, but you sure as heck, if you want to make a difference, and she does, she sees the opportunity that there is a team that will raise money for charity and explain that because I'm not going to. They're going to raise money for charity for... And the first thing I want to say, Michelle, is make no mistake, people do qualify for Boston, just not me. (laughs) Thank you. But you know what I mean? It's just like, people have a mission here in New York, they do too, but people have a mission. But you also, if you didn't qualify, but you wanted to do the Boston Marathon, you also saw an opportunity to do that and also give back and also do a personal... Yes. There's a a personal mission here and there's a bigger mission. So the personal mission has to do with the fact that um, I also had a congenital hip dysplasia on the right, which I wasn't aware of until a few years ago. And that led to a hip replacement, which really made me totally re-examine my activity level and what I was able to do and what perhaps it was advisable for me to do. But four years later, I'm doing great. And, you know, my surgeon said, as long as you're cautious and you listen to your body and you stop if you're having undue pain, yeah, you can train, you can do this. And so it felt important to me to do that because I'm running for an organization called Stepping Strong. And they are affiliated with Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. They fund trauma research and innovation. Several of the people who have benefited from their work are actually running as part of our team as amputees. And because we know the family who started this, and the reason it got started was because their daughter was one of the people deeply impacted by the 2013 bombings at the Boston finish line. And she was rushed to the Brigham where they saved her life and ultimately both of her legs. So there's a deep commitment here on my part partly as a physician who's taken care of trauma patients to be able to fund an organization to help them do better, but also as a mom 
whose daughter is friends with Jillian Rennie. Wow, I've watched the, the journey that Jillian's been on these 10 years since those bombings, and I have nothing but admiration for this young woman who has been through repeated surgeries mm. and continually has a smile on her face, hope in her heart, and the family wants to make things better for other people. Amazing. So yes, yes, I am proudly raising money for Stepping Strong, and when I go out and train, the last thing that goes on before I go out the door is my stepping strong hat. So I remember what I'm doing and why. <laughs> and you know what? By the way, I'm giving you guys trivia because we we were talking before. The Boston Marathon is the oldest marathon known um, in America. 1850s. The Boston Marathon. Now, we know the New York Marathon, but the Boston Marathon around the world is known as like the father of marathons here. And, you know, again, people with chronic conditions run the Boston Marathon, guys. They really do because they have a personal best. They have something in their bucket list. Even with a chronic condition, if they can do this, they are, they decide, okay, you know what? I want to do this and I'm going to take this challenge on, even with chronic conditions. No, not all chronic conditions, but hello, right? You know, one of the things I love about this too, Michelle, is I know that I have limitations at this point because of the hip. So yep. it means I have to take care of myself. Sure. I do have to listen to my body. I have to plan carefully how I train. I have to watch my nutrition. There's a whole bunch of stuff I have to do to take care of myself. And I actually feel like it's really good that I have this reason to do this because otherwise a lot of us are not so good at taking care of ourselves. We kind of let that slip sometimes. Yeah, we do. I and mean, so this is, so with this challenge, you said, you know, you're feeling better. And I think sometimes, you know, sometimes we need a challenge, uh, not always a marathon, but sometimes we need a challenge to go, you know what, how can I do my best? How can I take on a challenge with this? Well, you are. You know, uh, I love that you feel better than you have. You don't have to, you know, and you have, you also have a schedule, you know, that yeah, was created, which is important. And, you know, that's, that's a great thing, but here she's going to be able to give back to an organization in healthcare to make a difference for patients who've gone through trauma and who come out the other end. And by the way, I asked her, is this people in wheelchairs? Or she says, nope, all of them are with uh, with their prosthetics and they are running, running. And I will be looking for them on the television to yeah. see this group because that's pretty empowering. So empowering. I will, I will tell you briefly, we had a team meeting a couple of weeks ago. And one of the things that they're working on in conjunction with MIT is a robotic prosthetic for people who have either lost a hand or had a below the knee amputation. Mm. And they are doing a nerve sparing amputation so that then you are able to use your intact nerves to move, in this case, the fingers of your prosthetic hand. So cool. Yes. Yes. So, so cool. we, we watched this man who had regrettably lost his hand in a motorcycle accident hold up his prosthetic and then wave at us oh my goodness and he wow. said it had changed his life so wow so yeah there's there's something really magical about feeling that you're giving back in a way that enables other people to come back to a life that perhaps they thought that they had had to leave behind 
and that's how and that's within the realm of healthcare. Laura, what can what can you say about the challenges of speaking with you know when you're with a patient when doctors are with a patient and they're we're talking about a surgery that could be coming up or so forth how important is it to connect with the doctor how how important is it to understand that connection with the doctor i think it's imperative i think it's absolutely imperative um, you know, when I had actually, when I had both my heart surgery and my hip surgery, I talked to multiple surgeons because I needed to have a surgeon who not only technically was able to do the work that needed to be done. I needed to feel that we both were on the same page in terms of what our expectations were, what our hopes were for the outcome. And I, I did not want to feel that I was someone coming in to have quote a procedure done right okay yeah yeah. sounds a little dehumanizing when you put it that way right 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 no I'm a human being and in both cases both with the mitral valve and the hip these things were impacting my ability to live life the way I wanted to live it and so whatever happened as a result of that surgery was going to be very important to me I wanted a doctor and a surgeon who would look me in the eye and I felt like we had a human connection there. Yeah. You wanted to connect. You wanted to connect. And yes. I talk about that as a patient advocate. You know, you got to speak up. You can learn. You can have a patient advocate help you. But doctors are advocates. Nurses are advocates. They want the best for the patients. They always do. They really are. They're in your corner. But I also want you to be in your corner and feel that you, as the patient, are connecting. If, if it feels weird, it's not the person for you. That doesn't mean they're not qualified. I say this all the time, but I'm going to keep stressing it, guys. There are a lot of really good doctors out there, but you're looking when you're partnering with a doctor, the best fit for you. Right? Right, Laura? Yes. I mean, you really want you the best fit. You know, you saw a couple and you got to one who literally did not look at the x-ray as, as they were talking to you, but turned around and asked you a very important question. So, yeah, what's going on? He said, tell me what's going on. Well, it's like this, sir. Um, I can't walk without this walker anymore, and that's a problem for me. But, you know, I mean, I can say that now that I've had a good outcome, but at that moment in time, it was devastating. It yeah, to be a 50-something, and you're like, uh-huh. come on. Uh, I can't practice cardiac anesthesia using a walker. No. Um, not to mention being in constant pain. So, yeah, it was it was deadly serious to me. And the very fact that he didn't come in the room, look at the x-ray, look at the chart, and then tell me what he was going to do. He looked at me and he just said, tell me what's going on. Do you guys hear that? I, I like it gives, you know, it raises the hair on my arm. That's how powerful it is to connect. That's why Laura and I have gone into coaching and in the healthcare universe, we're going to help. She's going to help doctors and, and the healthcare teams really look at things because they're trying to create change and they get stuck. and. They need help to see the bigger picture and um, 
maybe they need to shift some things. And that's what coaches are great for. Me, I'm working with you guys because you're looking for lifestyle changes, behavior changes. You're looking for ways to strategize and use tools to help you manage a chronic condition. And both she and I, you know, to be in your 50s and transition and start working on things, um, it's daunting. But I also think, like Laura and I have discussed, that it's also exciting and a little scary. But so is a chronic condition. That's scary. But every time you get an answer and I get news like my neurologist says, you know, I don't need to see you every six months, that's pretty cool. That means whatever I'm doing for my chronic condition, I'm doing the right thing. Doctors, when I also want to talk to you about um, two other things. Palliated care, and I want to talk about um, the other thing: palliated care and compliancy, because Mm. I want you to hear Laura's understanding of that from the other side of the desk, you guys, from the other side of the table, because compliancy just sounds like you know it's almost like a test. You know, you have to be compliant. What does that mean? What are, what are doctors asking? And palliated care, while you all are getting used to, and I've had two patient advocates come on, talk about palliative care at the end of life, different, but they also stress that palliative care is not just for end of life. It's also for rehabilitation. It means palliative care. So talk a little bit about that because you've gone through that personally and also You've had that with your patients, definitely. Yes. Little hearts. (laughs) I think one of the biggest things is when it comes down to palliated is, again, expectations. Trying to ask the questions about what should I expect here? When this is done, what will be different? And what will I need to do to get even better? In the case of my hip, it was 11 weeks of physical therapy. Okay. I worked hard to strengthen the muscles that had to get cut to do this surgery. So you could stand and do your job in anesthesia for surgeries for little hearts. Right. But you know, the thing of it is, it's, it's interesting because a lot of it, it becomes complex because it's about mindset and it's about where you are mentally. And it's hard because if you have been ill or if you have a chronic condition, there are any number of reasons why you may not be at your best place. And it's hard to look at things you need to do and say, yeah, I'm going to make that happen. Okay. At at the same time, I think it's really crucial to get an understanding from your healthcare provider. Why are these things important? And what can I expect if I do these things? Because in the case of my hip, you know, for me to be at a place now where I can consider running the Boston Marathon, It's because of that physical therapy. Make no mistake, I had a great surgeon and a great surgery, but if I had not had a great physical therapist and not done the work, I wouldn't be as strong as I am today. So it becomes a partnership in a lot of ways. And I think the big thing is trying to understand who plays different parts in the partnership and what's needed to get to the best possible place. Mm. Good point. Really good. It's, you know, that's, it's important to hear that, you guys, because th- that they are looking for that. That's why, you know, I've said to you, you know, if you're not understanding something, please slow the healthcare team member down. Mm-hmm. Ask them to reframe it. Tell them that you, you know, 
Because when you say that, when you ask them to reframe it, it means that you're showing an interest that you really do want to be compliant. You want to follow what they're asking you to do for your best health. And that interests doctors. They would prefer they don't see you as much as they do. They really would. They feel better when they know that you're doing well and you've committed to helping yourself with this condition. And sometimes the answer is hard to hear because a lot of times, both in my world and I know from my orthopedic surgeon, sometimes the answer is we don't have enough information to be able to completely answer that question. Okay. But even that I like knowing. And and so where that came up for me was the first two surgeons I talked to said, well, after you have a hip replacement, you'll never run again. That's just what we tell patients. You should take up other activities. Like golf. Right. Do you care about golf, Laura? (laughs) No, it's just funny. I always love that. Yeah, I personally do not golf. No, no. no. I'd rather play tennis, but yeah. Okay. Um, The third surgeon, the one I ended up going with, when I asked him the question, he said, well, you know, the reality is most of us don't recommend it. But if I'm truthful with you, we don't have significant outcome studies to really tell us the longevity of these prosthetics. We know these prosthetics are 40 times stronger than the ones we initially used. So really, we don't have the information to know. Ooh. Wow. What a piece, right? Right? I mean, wow. Laura, actually, like sharing the um, big question mark, like, I don't know. I don't know. But I'm a surgeon. But I don't know this. You know, what's interesting is you talk also, can we talk about when we talk, sometimes doctors say things like, well, like you just did, there hasn't been a lot of studies. We will say (laughs) empirical evidence, which means empirical means a lot of evidence, enough to say, okay, we can say this for sure. We can say this kind of, but we're always looking for more empirical evidence. Sometimes doctors will say to you, just like this doctor did, we're not sure yet. We right. we are we are still studying this. I will tell you that coaching, health and wellness coaching is being studied to see the benefits for patients, for doctors, for nurses to have coaching because will it help that person live a better life, do a better job? Yeah, we're starting to see, and knock on wood, we'll see more. Um, health insurance companies say, you know what? Health and wellness coaching, yeah, we'll sign off on that. We'll let you see a health and wellness coach for that. That's a big deal. But that's because there is enough empirical evidence for people to start to say, hmm, is this something that we should consider? Do we need to study this more? And that's always cool to hear. And and sometimes they're sure of something and something will come along. And we learn through studies that maybe we were wrong. I mean, journals yeah. are full of that. You know, people, you know, doctors have clay feet. They do. You know, I've said this before. My father's a doctor. He was a surgeon. They have clay feet. They put on their socks the same way that we do. Presidents and, you know, plumbers, put it on the same way. Understand that they can change their position, but they have to be really, really sure with a lot of other people working on, now that we've developed a new point of view, are we feeling sure enough that we want to share this with the world? That's not taken lightly, right? Not at all. And I 
I like what you said about, you know, having clay feet, because the reality is medicine is also an art. Okay. It's based on science. It is an art. Um, one of my favorite examples of, of that is my own profession, anesthesia. There are actually not that many anesthetic drugs when you get right down to it. Okay. <laughs> Isn't I mean, that wild. We, we have small, in, a small window. Right. We have inhalational agents or gas, and then we have a handful of injectable or intravenous medications that we use. Not that many. And yet we all, each of us, create highly individualized anesthetics for a variety of patients using just those things. That is art. Okay. Yeah, it is. It that is. That is art. Yeah. And and so I think that's another thing to realize as much as I would like an answer that's certain when I'm a patient, what I deeply appreciated about my surgeon was that he was willing to say to me, I don't know, because that was as true an answer as he actually could give. If he had said, we know for certain, I would have sort of raised my eyebrows because there's very little that we know for certain. Most of what we know, what we can say is at this moment in time, based on the evidence that we have, this is what we believe. But you are absolutely right, Michelle. In 10 years, we might have evidence that suggests something different, or we might have a new drug that has superseded this drug we're looking at now. So even though right now, this is the best thing, 10 years from now, we might say no, no longer. Yeah. And so sometimes, you know, we always talk about the naysayer. Sometimes you need the naysayer who says, you know what, I'm not totally signed off on this yet. This is a case, Laura, where it is important. It's not that they say no. They say the ones who use the naysayer and say, you know what, we're still looking at things. We don't know. We don't know what it's going to be like 40 years from now. Maybe I may answer you very differently. But that's when asking questions is really important. It is. You know, and when you're the patient. Ask quite no, you're not being a nudge, but write them down. Know that there's limited time. Decide what is the most important question or questions you want to ask at this appointment. Mm-hmm. And don't feel like you can't ever. You could even say to the doctor, is it possible for me to my chart you? Today we have my chart to ask you any other questions that come up. Ask them if there's somebody who are who would let you do that. It may be that they're not great at, at looking at their my chart, but they also could be. I have uh, doctors who are great at responding quickly. Um, not even quickly. They always respond. They they always look to see. But I choose my question very carefully. You know, you, you want to not overwhelm. Don't go crazy. But if you have something that comes up, ask the question because they may have an answer or they may say, just like Laura said, uh, we don't know yet. We don't know. Look, when I go into into surgery, um, I with um, multiple sclerosis patients, we wake up slower. Many of us, not all. I'm not going to say all, but our nervous system has been challenged. They've worn away the myelin that coated like the stereo wires that you have the coating on. That's that's our our nervous system getting worn away. The myelin gets worn away from the body thinking it has to attack it. God only knows what that conversation is, right? But we need to say to the anesthesiologist, I'm going to wake up slower. So just be aware. Don't get scared <laughs> because, you know, if they think it's just going to be a normal wake up, you know, better to tell them. Because as she just said, the cocktail for that needs to be made so that it works for that patient. And those are the things that doctors need to know. You know, we need to give 
our healthcare teams the information. Don't hold back. Really tell them. Really share with them what's going on and what your concerns are. Absolutely. Because if you were the patient, you would want the same questions responded to. You know, doctors, you know, sometimes they get questions. They're like, well, that's it. I mean, we, Laura and I have been talking here. And sometimes we didn't think of that question. Oh, okay. That's something I haven't thought about. Um, or it stimulates the doctor or the patient to propose something else or, or ask another question or think about it a little differently. Um, living with chronic illnesses, we want to not be defined by a chronic illness. We want to live our lives. We want to find out what we need to do, hopefully take on the challenge to do it. And there you go. We're talking about hearts. You know, the kid gets their heart fixed at three or four years of age. Well, they're going to have to be. Let's use another word. They're going to need to be followed for their lifetime so that we can make sure that we are on top of if something breaks, if something changes, that we can address it, that the healthcare world can address it. That's why in bariatrics, don't kid yourself. If something's going weird, get in to see the doctor. They do this surgery because they want people to not have to have the diagnosis of obesity. They want you to succeed. So if you're having a hard time, get in the office. They're not mad at you. Nobody's mad at you because you're having a hard time. They're more mad at you when you don't come in. You know, get your butt in there. But, you know, and that frustrates because it's another partnership, just like patient and a physician. Coaches and coaches are partners. And, you know, palliated care. I love that that also extends, you know, the minute she said it to me, I went, oh, of course it does. You know, it's it's not a complete repair. It always needs, you know, follow-up, but that's just what we get when it's chronic. And, you know, I hit that word very hard for a reason. I just want you to understand, you know, it's not, it's not a death sentence. It's just something that's always around and that you just have to be aware. And doctors really want that. But she and I went into working with people in coaching because both of us saw the opportunity to create change. And you've been sharing with me, Laura, some of the ways that you see other female doctors out in the workplace dealing with challenges, nurses dealing with challenges. Because when do you speak up and when does it not become like, quote, the me too kind of thing? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when do you speak up to say there's something going on that shouldn't be going on, whether it's in the surgery room or it's in the conversations between men and women. We have to know how we're going to do that. You know, we have to speak up. And in the world of working with doctors, how do you, as a female doctor, look at a look at a challenge with opposite sex or being given something that's a challenge and knowing right now, perhaps this isn't the best time to take on this particular thing. Ask me a couple of years from now when I don't have a two-year-old at home and I'm pregnant or I'm not moving and all of those things. Um, yeah, maybe a good time. But right now, the ability to say, 
what can I handle now is important. Yeah, I think that there are, you know, this is something that calls to my heart, but there are a lot of challenges out there for healthcare workers. And I think in particular for women and members of underrepresented minorities. And they fall into the form sometimes some, you know, they are things that ultimately can even impact patient safety, which is one of the things that I know is always on your mind. But when you don't feel empowered to speak up because you're concerned that you might be talked over or even ridiculed, mm. or, you know, it, I think when you're conscious that members of, of the team might speak differently to you than they do to other people, those are things that really over time take a toll on healthcare providers. And, and so I think that. It, it is not always an easy industry to be in right now because it's not just about developing a skill set and knowledge and being willing to work long hours. It's also about dealing with environments that can be challenging and that still are not always what they don't always represent what we would ideally like our world to be. And so I think part of what I love about coaching is working with clients. And being able to give them a place where they can safely talk about those things and helping them come to determinations about what is most important to them and how they would like to handle that, which things they can let go of and which things they say, no, I, I need to find a way to confront that because that's not okay with me and my value system. And there's that word that I love, value system. We also have talked about it in, in our conversations, ethics. And when doctors take their oath, that's serious. Do no harm. That's what they're signing on for. Do no harm. That's their mission. Don't, if you're with somebody who's crazy, that's another thing, but they really don't want to do any harm to a person. Ethically, they're bound to do the best they can for that person. Be glad that they have ethics and values. Really, that they are looking at the parameters of things that genuinely need to be, you know, looked at. Why did we create HIPAA? We created HIPAA for patients to have an ethical state to say, no, I can say this. I have the right to say this. And it's on paper. And we now know, and we have to sign off on that. And it's in doctor's offices all the time. It's there for your protection, just as they want to ethically do the best that they can in the situation. And please, 99 and 9 tenths of them really are looking to do that. What is the best thing I can do for my patient? I know we read stories in the paper and see things on TV, but I want to come back to, I believe in human humans and I believe in humankind and I don't believe that we want to hurt each other. I don't. Sorry, I can't live here in this world if I am going to look at a glass half full, half empty. I look at a glass half full. I think that's what physicians do. I think they look at the glass half full. I can make a difference. This can help the patient. That's what we want. But ethically, what do you think, Laura? Do you think it's well, changed? Do you think any of it's changed over time? I think 
No, I don't think the I don't think the substrate has changed. I think the challenges have gotten more and more difficult. But what I was thinking of when you said that was something I heard from Brene Brown, which is what if everyone was trying to do their best? Thank goodness for Brene Brown. You know, I you really guys know like her. That. She's so, so amazing. If you don't know Brene Brown, I'll I'll give you some links, you guys. But that is she is unbelievable and powerful and yeah. Yeah. So that goes both ways, right? So if a physician looks at a patient and let's say the patient has not been as compliant with taking medications, well, so the physician can say, but what if they're doing their best? In other words, what if there's information I don't know? Was it hard for them to get their meds? Did they have to travel? They forgot their meds. Like what things could have happened so that they meant to do this and didn't do it, right? Yep. And likewise, when the patient looks at the physician and you think, oh, they seem like they're in an awful hurry and they don't have much to say today. Okay. Likewise, what if they're doing their best and what might you not know? Is it true that they have to see X number of patients? They only have this amount of time. There are other things today that have impacted this. Possible. All of it possible, right? And so I think we walk around a lot of times and what the human mind is very good at is judging. We judge ourselves, we judge situations, we judge other people constantly. And what if we just took a step back and said, what if everyone was doing their best? I'd rather live in that world. All right, Laura, what is it? It takes some thought and effort because we do, our minds do keep wanting to go back to the, I have an opinion and a judgment about everything, right? I am the queen or, of having opinions. I, I, listen, but, uh, absolutely. But also, but, what can I do? Like what, but, you know? But the reality is, you know, what do I not know about this situation? What are all the things that might have occurred here or might have impacted this that I don't know about? So that means asking questions. That means genuinely, like she gave you an example of the orthopedic surgeon she went with. There you go. Asking a question. How, you know, when, when, seriously, when doctors mostly ask you the question, how are you feeling? They don't want to hear all the minutia. They want to know how you're feeling. I'm feeling good. Or I've had a challenge with so-and-so. Well, have you been able to take the medicine? Be honest. Have you not been able to take the medication because the pill is too big? Be honest. Tell them the truth. You know, there's something called compounding. It can be put into a liquid form. You can take it that way. But if they don't know that you're having a hard time with the size of a pill, they can't help you. And they would love to help you. You know, it's just, it's little things like that, that sharing that information both ways. You know, they want to. That's, That's part of helping others and ethically doing it for the best interests of the patient and for the outcome, you know? And I hope that those of you out there have had some great experiences and also that some of you have had some negative ones, but hearing ways to handle conversations with the healthcare world, and it's a landscape that is changing. You know, Laura and I were talking, it's become a business which it never was. Sorry, guys, it never will be. You can try as hard as you want to make it into a business. In the end, the product is a human body with a human mind and a human soul and a human heart. And that's different than a box of Cheerios. 
or a car. You know, those are things. And we are humans. And that's why it's been so hard. So you want people like Laura and I creating change because if we can start moving that, then the people that we're working with will want to start moving that. And that's what we want to see. We want to see that change. It shouldn't be about money. Healthcare shouldn't be about money. It wasn't. Not till the 70s, 80s. It wasn't about money. I mean, they made money, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about health insurance should be given to everyone, right, Laura? We're talking about corporate big business is what you're talking about. Yeah. And I don't yeah. I don't want health. You're talking to be about records record setting bonuses. That's yeah. not what, and what should the heck? be about. Which, Laura, repeat what you said to me, which some of you may know. What happened during the pandemic? One of the worst atrocities in the world of healthcare across the world. Yes. What where, happens with 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 CEOs and, and, and health insurance? Well, so I'll tell you both sides of the equation. On the one hand, my specialty, anesthesia, because we are trained to manage airways and intensive care, we took a beating during COVID. And people were demoralized. They suffered moral injury from the things they had to watch and the patients that they lost. Burnout went up. So you have this on the one hand, and on the other hand, you have executives taking home record bonuses. Imagine being a nurse in a room and nobody wants to bring anything into the room to you because they don't want to come into the COVID room. Imagine having to put up notes and hold them against the glass. To say, I need so-and-so. Imagine being Laura with anesthesiology and having to find ways to keep airways open. How do you, you know? Or Michelle, imagine being the provider who, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, when we didn't know what best practices might look like, we didn't always have adequate protective gear. And every day that you work, you are afraid that when you go home, you might take something into your house that's going to harm your family too. Yeah. You know, and best practices is that. How do we create the, the safest areas, the safest environment for people? No, we didn't know. Listen, some of us, you know, how many people at the beginning were wearing bandanas, just cloth over their faces? How many still are, which I don't understand. It's a KN95 mask. That's what it is. And it comes from... It comes from actually construction and also from um, healthcare. You need the very, very safest with many, many layers masks to help you. Um, you know, and if you're still wearing it, look for KN95 masks. They're still around, but they didn't have enough. You guys, they did not have enough masks to help themselves. Can you imagine washing that, taking it home, and hanging it up to air dry? Now we know, no, you can't do that. You have to throw it away. You cannot keep reusing it because it will not be something that will help a doctor or a nurse or a member of the healthcare team stay safe. Don't be wearing yours all over the place. Cloth won't help, especially with the new strains. No, you you know, and that's not to scare anyone. It's just to understand the healthcare system is broken. We know that. And people are trying to fix it. That's why Laura and I are here talking about this today. We're trying to help others who can make a difference get clearer to what they can do. Right, Laura? It, we want people to figure out the great, what is the great question? Then what is the great answer? 
What I'd like is a better world for patients, families, and healthcare workers. Um, I worry for my colleagues. I worry for my daughter who's in her first year of being a pediatric anesthesiologist, just like her mom. <laughs> oh, I love it. Yes. In your I, shoes. <laughs> I want I want these people to be able to love doing their jobs. And that means we need to work to change system conditions because right now it's a pretty hard job. And that doesn't mean we don't do it. We have great hospitals, great doctors out there, but we need to continue to make it better, better and make change. No, what's going on with corporate greed in the healthcare system? No, no, it cannot continue. It can't. That will take a village to make change. But I'm interested in working with that village. I'm working with, interested in making a difference with that. Because I want patients to say what they need. And I want doctors to feel they have the ability to be heard. This is not safe. Eight to 12 minutes. If you're dealing with somebody who's in oncology, in cardiology, it may not be enough. So don't tell me that I have to get my notes in by the end of the day and I have to see 72 patients in a day. Don't, don't, no. See, that just sounds like a factory. Right, Laura? We're not a factory. We're dealing with humans. We're not making chocolate that's coming across like an I Love Lucy thing at a speed and then just gets faster. When you speed it up like it did with Lucy and Ethel, what happens? You can't keep up with that. How could you keep up with chocolate barreling down on you, let alone humans? They're not on a, on a conveyor belt. They're humans with chronic conditions because, unfortunately, in this world, we have more and more. And most we, most we see is we see not just one chronic condition, but a couple. And that's not ominous. Again, I'm not saying that to be, you know, you know, negative Nancy. I'm not. I'm saying that because we have to be honest in what's out there and what we see. And I asked Laura to talk about these things from the other side of the table because I just didn't want you all to think that doctors don't care, that doctors don't see challenges with the condition of healthcare today that they think it's okay that they have to whip through patients and then they can get home and have dinner or go out and do whatever they're doing or take longer vacations because, you know, this is what's going on. No, I wanted you to understand we're all trying to figure this out. But I sure as heck want the person who's doing the surgery or seeing me in an office who's making a diagnosis to be supported by the healthcare system so that they can think clearly and take the time to really diagnose and assess and figure out what to do for people, for a person. And I know from knowing Laura these couple of years that she sees that. So imagine stepping back after all those years, being an anesthesiologist and just thinking, oh, she just threw up her hands and gave up that lucrative job. Not, you know, it's not that it wasn't lucrative, but it also sometimes what your calling is and what you need may shift, right? Here's here's another reframe though, Michelle. Okay. We've mentioned the Boston Marathon, right? Laura's training. It's exciting. 100%. 100%. If I were working full-time as a cardiac anesthesiologist, I couldn't do this. <laughs> Why? Because I didn't get home during daylight hours. 
I would not have the time to run and train, nor would I have the energy because I didn't get enough sleep because at least a couple nights a week I was on call. I didn't eat regularly. I didn't hydrate well. These are just the bad habits that develop because you don't have enough time. Okay. So I think that there's like when you say I gave up a lucrative job, I am fortunate in that my girls were grown and out of college and I could make different choices than what I made 10 years ago. Okay. I'm very fortunate in that way. Yeah. Yeah. But make no mistake, making this change had nothing to do with money. It had everything to do with, can I help other people? And oh my gosh, do I ever feel better now that I have time to take care of myself too? And that's a sad realization because that's not always true for my colleagues. And I don't forget that. But I also think when I hear, you know, you've gone through this process of thinking and the girls are old enough and you can look at things a little differently. You also saw that you could give back in a different way to help your peers. Yes. The experience is not wasted. Mm -hmm. And as I've said to you guys, and even more so at her level, we have the answers, guys. We're going to ask you powerful questions and hopefully unlock some of how you looked at something and unearth. You're going to unearth what the answer is. Doctors have lots of information in their head, but sometimes it gets hidden. Oh, right? It, here's a big problem with doctors. We have a lot in our heads, but it goes round and round and round and round. Okay. <laughs> we, we often lack the time to sit and reflect and be able to really let things just be. Yeah. Just sit with it. Like you'd sit at the beach or at the pool for a minute and just, just be with it. Just be with like the sun or hearing the water in the pool or the ocean, just to have a minute to check in with yourself. Mm-hmm. That's what coaching is. Checking in with yourself. Finding out some things that you need to tap into. That's why coaching now is being supportive for health and wellness, which is what we work with, as something that health insurance companies will sign off on. I think that's miles that we've come. It is. But I want to see miles come for understanding that coaching needs to happen for hospitals, for teams in offices, for for doctors. I want those teams to be supported, to be able to think for a second and breathe and think what would be the best thing for me? How could I bring the best of me to my work? And what can I do to expand and think out of the box. And that's where I want to see things go. Yeah, I agree. This is a different kind of conversation we've had today. And I hope that you guys will just mull it over. Think about it next time you see your doctor. Consider there's two sides of the desk and that you're both looking for answers and you both need some space sometimes. Sometimes they don't give you, you know, the immediate answer. Sometimes they need to mull it over for a bit and figure it out. Sometimes they need to know more about you to figure out what the best course of action is. So let them take the time. Let you take the time to explore how you're going to take care of you because health is wealth on both sides. 
It really is, right, Laura? It is. And uh, on that note, I look forward to seeing you guys on Talk Radio for Women on our next episode. And I wish you a lovely day and a lovely week. Thanks, Laura. Thanks so much for having me, Michelle. This was wonderful. Wonderful.